Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Welcome to another edition of the Revelation Project Podcast. So today I'm with a very special guest with degrees from Oxford and London universities and a background in communication, entrepreneurship, and on-the-ground environmental activism. Jojo Mehta has a unique reputation for getting things done and likes nothing better than working to unusual parameters. She is a natural leader as well as a compelling public speaker and advocate. Alongside barrister and legal pioneer, the late Polly Higgins, Jojo co-founded the Stop Ecocide campaign in 2017 to support the establishment of ecocide as a crime at the International Criminal Court. Since Polly's death in 2019, she has coordinated the growing international team engaged in this highly focused mission and is chair of the board of the Stop Ecocide Foundation in the Netherlands, which now manages the campaign. Jojo is a key spokeswoman for Stop Ecocide and has contributed to law conferences, environmental summits, festivals, and climate rallies, as well as podcasts, interviews, and articles for publications and broadcasters ranging from Extinction Rebellion to the BBC World Service and from Ecologist to the New York Times. Hello, Jojo. Hi, Monica. Lovely to be here. I'm so glad to have you. I, I want to actually just start, Jojo, with you had said that when this, when COVID really uh, happened, it became kind of this really compelling and busy time for you guys at Ecoside. So I want to check in and kind of find out why. Right. So um, the Stop Ecoside campaign has been uh, growing really very fast over the last year. And we had an interesting situation really under lockdown where, you know, we have quite an international team anyway, though, you know, we, we do quite a, you know, we were already used to doing quite a few you know, video calls, which of course now are commonplace for everybody. Um, but what we found was that we were able to be present at events that in, you know, the normal run of things we might not have been able to reach, you know, in terms of location, in terms of expense and capacity. And so we found that we had a, an expanding kind of platform, if you like, in the fact that most activities were moving online. And it gave us a sort of attention raising potential as a result of that. But not just that, because one of the things that the pandemic has shown is that, you know, contrary to what governments might have told us, they can act very fast when they need to. And so I think this has also given us a sort of extra an extra string to our bow in terms of requiring and demanding of our our governments that something actually enforceable is done about the destruction of nature that we're all witnessing. I, I want to kind of dig more into that in a moment, Jojo, but what I'd love for you to do for our audience is just kind of talk a little bit more about what ecocide means. Absolutely. It's often the first question, you know, so what, what is ecocide exactly? Well, part of the clue is in the name. Um, of course, homicide means to kill a person and it's a crime. Genocide means to destroy a people and it's a crime. Ecocide, logically enough, means to destroy nature 
And it is not yet a crime. And that's why, you know, our campaign exists is to make sure that it becomes one at the international level. So in in sort of simple terms, it means mass damage and destruction of ecosystems. So serious damage to nature that is widespread or severe or systematic. And importantly, that is committed with knowledge of the risks. Mm, that's such an important thing to distinguish right there, because I think that one of the things that continues to just confound me personally, and I'm sure that there are a lot of listeners out there that feel the same way, is that surely we know the risks by now, we know better. And so why why are our governments allowing all of these corporations and interest groups to basically destroy the planet. I think this is the this is this is really the heart of of uh, what we're dealing with in the sense that you know, we, we already know what the effects are. We know that what the costs are. We know the costs to life on Earth. We know the costs to humanity. And especially, I would say, to those who are most exploited, which tend to be the pe- peoples in the global south, indigenous communities, you know, who are exploited because they're in some of the most biodiverse regions on the planet. And of course, future generations, you know, so we know all of those costs. And, you know, why is it in the, you know, in the presence of that, that this still continues? And it is simply, I know it sounds kind of basic, but it is simply because it's allowed to. So with with Ecoside, we are talking almost exclusively, not completely, because of course, there are plenty of state sponsored corporations, but essentially, it's a corporate crime. It's committed by businesses. And it's on the whole, not committed with active intent. In other words, you know, your, your fossil fuel executive isn't thinking to himself, he's not sitting there rubbing his hands and stroking his white cat saying, you know, what forest can I destroy today? (laughs) You know, what's actually happening is, you know, how can we make the most money with the least, you know, with the the most return for the least, you know, costs and externalities. And ecocide or destruction of nature is simply collateral damage along the way, because CEOs are actually kind of obliged, their duty actually is to maximize profit and to do so by any lawful means effectively. And so if something is lawful, they will do it if that is what you know what is the quickest route to making a return for their for shareholders and that is sometimes that's even against what they would like to be able to say but there's currently nothing in place to actually correct that course there are one you know there are a handful of countries in the world that have ecocide in their penal codes um not many and it's not very well enforced so what we're aiming to do is to bring it into international law so that there's the, if you like what what it is it's about it's about kind of bringing destruction of nature into a different category because at the moment there are actually of course there are plenty of environmental laws but most of them fall within the kind of regulatory sphere which is essentially sort of mostly civil law you know with a few sort of specific crimes but mostly um it's under regulatory law and it's not if something isn't a crime it doesn't carry the same moral weight as a crime so in in our kind of you know so-called first world culture (laughs) We use criminal law to draw the red line, to define what is morally acceptable and what is not. So if you, you know, if you're going to submit your business plan, say you want, you know, you want a permit for some kind of extractive industry, extractive industry, and, you know, you put your plan to the government and you say, you know, I'm just going to create a lot of jobs. You know, we're intending on, you know, raising a few villages to the ground, um, shooting a whole bunch of people. But, you know, it'll be great for business. You won't get your permit and you won't get your permit because those things are completely morally abhorrent and completely criminal. So but we do go and try and get permits for activities that destroy the environment. So effectively, let's just give you a picture of how moving 
that activity, that destructive activity below that moral red line so that it's actually a crime and not just a crime, but it's seen internationally to be an atrocity crime alongside crimes like genocide and crimes like, you know, war crimes and so on. You know, when that perception changes, that whole approach will change and you'll actually end up with an enforceable deterrent and an effective one that simply isn't currently in place. Jojo, I am sitting over here with so many questions because listening to you, it's very clear what's going on. And yet there's also still, I think, even though there's so much more awareness, there's also a huge disconnect, almost like the problem exists out there. And how can I, little Monica Rogers, <laughs> sitting here at home and COVID in lockdown, even begin to make a difference in the realm of, you know, there's so many friends and family members in my world who care deeply and in fact are deeply anxious mm-hmm. about the environment and what we have been doing in how we've been plundering the planet. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about how you bring this, ground this in with people and personalities and help them make it personal. I think this is a really good question. And it's something that we've had, we've really had to work with over the years, because many people feel feel that way. They care deeply. They feel very powerless. And yet when you talk about law, people think of it as something very distant. It's something that other people do, that lawyers do, that experts do. And it's not something that they can sort of hope to be involved in or to influence. And then when you go to international law, it feels even further away. And then you go to international criminal law and it feels on another planet, you know. Right, yeah. Um, so, so you can, uh, you, you, you've absolutely, you know, hit the heart of one of the, the, the issues for us around communication because, you know, actually what we realize, it, it is really interesting because this has kind of evolved as a story really almost organically about how this, how this, um, how we've ended up addressing exactly what you just asked me. And it actually comes from, I'm going to just get backtrack in time a little way because mm-hmm. Polly Higgins, who I started this campaign with, who is my dearest friend, and we worked together for four and a half years. And she had been already working on promoting this concept of ecocide as a crime since since 2010, so already many years. Um, and what she was finding was that she was finding it difficult to get funding for the work and she was finding it difficult to get you know, big NGOs to support her and so on. But what she found was that where she spoke and where she communicated with people, she gathered a following. You know, people were like, wow, this really needs to happen. We, you know, we really get it. What can we do? And so it got to a stage where she realized that, you know, it was something that was considered so kind of risky and out there for the big established NGOs and also, you know, big funders that, she realized that, and, and I remember when she, it was actually, she came back from a trip to the US, actually, which was really interesting. She'd been visiting a number of different uh, organizations and one environmental NGO, she spoke with them and she said, you know, how, how would you go about, you know, working on getting this made an international crime? And, and they sort of said, oh, well, it's pretty radical, isn't it? You know, it would take some years and we'd have to start with sustainable development and kind of work our way up to law. And she kind of went, well, you know, she's internally thinking, well, how much time do you think we've got? Oh, right. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, but also, she, you know, they said, no, we'll have to get a wealthy state on board first, you know, so that we've got someone to work with. She obviously already knew from her experience, we already knew that this was not going to happen because the wealthy states in particular are very, have a lot of very embedded economic relationship. And so this wasn't something that was going to be easy to do. And when she came back, she said, Jojo, do you know what? We're going to have to start with the people. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to, if we want to take this forward, we're going to have to crowdfund it. We're going to need to launch a public campaign around it. 
And that was how we first, in a way, how we first started working together, because I came from the environmental campaigning side and she came from the legal side. So we put these, you know, our skill sets together and we ended up with this public campaign, which is now several years old and, and, and starting to expand really quite fast. But what we realized is that it, for people to really connect with this, it's actually to do with really hooking into what a difference it makes in terms of the things we care about. So, you know, what we now talk about is that this is a law that can protect the future of life on Earth. Now, that's something that everybody really relates to, particularly now where it's, you know, people are actually starting to become so aware of that being potentially precarious. So it's about how can I help to protect the Earth? And actually, our campaign was kind of built around how people could potentially do that. And actually, a lot of it is about it, what we're realizing, of course, over time is that a lot of it is simply about talking about it it sounds mm. so simple it sounds so simple but as you know as you know witness the fact that the first question you asked me is you know what is ecocide it is around having people understand that there is a common denominator behind all these harms that we're seeing happening all of these harms are a certain level of destruction to ecosystems and it might be huge use of pesticides that's destroying soils and you know and and decimating insect populations or it may be you know huge plastic pollution it may be you know air pollution that's you know exacerbating climate damage deforestation that's exacerbating climate damage but they feel like lots of individually insurmountable problems but when you put them all together and you say this is all ecocide this is all mass damage and destruction and effectively it is criminal people kind of understand that very quickly because it feels criminal and then it's a question of saying well actually it's believe it or not it's not actually criminal yet but we can all help to make it be so by talking about it because and this is literally what's happening i mean you know in terms of our specific campaign you can also put your funds in and put your money where your mouth is you can join us and become what we call an earth protector and you can you know you can sign up and be part of the campaign but you don't even have to do that. It's about talking about it. It's about using the word because when you want to create a big change, there's something about bringing in a, a key concept that people can really rally around. And so there's something around the concept of ecocide and being able to stop ecocide that actually can, you know, can potentially tap into that if people are prepared to talk about it. And that's something that we are just seeing really starting to develop over the last few months. I couldn't agree more about dialogue shifting this because what you said, which I've asterisked here, is if people are prepared to talk about it. And one of the things that I always talk about on the show is how we're socialized. And we're socialized to live kind of on the surface and to not have uncomfortable conversations that involve emotions, involve feeling. And yet what we're facing, I think, as a human species is mass distinction because we're unwilling to be in an uncomfortable conversation around what it's going to take to change the status quo. And what what I think a lot of people, you know, it's this idea of emotional intelligence and even being able to like name your emotions as you're feeling them. And some of the emotions that come up for me, for example, are emotions like grief, panic, you know, despair, anger, hopelessness, helplessness, yeah. all of these very uncomfortable feelings. It's like, who wants to feel that way? Like, can I please have some Netflix? And really, the reason I'm bringing this into the conversation is because I think it's also very, very important for those of us that care, and I think all of us care, to kind of start giving ourselves permission to feel these very uncomfortable emotions and to start putting language around them. 
I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that's one of the things that's really been tapped into in an amazing way over the last year by the kind of mass civil mobilizations that we've seen across the world, actually, with the school strikes inspired by Greta Thunberg and also by the Extinction Rebellion movement that, you know, there's a lot of people feel confronted by it because, you know, it's like, you know, you're talking you're raising an alarm, you know, effectively, you're saying this is an emergency that we're in. And we have to kind of, you know, we do have to be able to clock that. And I think it's interesting for us, because, you know, Polly and I were working for many years with a small team, really, until fairly recently around this, and people were finding it hard to hear. And I think you've put your finger on one of the reasons why that's been difficult. So I think one of the things that has changed is precisely because of that, you know, up, you know, upsetting for a lot of people and sort of disruptive mass mobilization is that the conversational window has grown larger and mm-hmm. people are able to are more able to address those you know those or maybe more able to kind of encompass in their conversation the kind of scariness of the level of what we may be facing ecologically but i think that one of the, the really inspiring things about what we're doing and it's actually it's quite a joy to be able to see this. And we see it a lot in people when we talk about this, you can see this kind of light bulb going on and people, you know, behind people's eyes almost. Right. Like, you know, oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's this sense that, you know, here is an actual solution that's achievable, that's doable, that kind of, it's almost like you see that you see people sort of suddenly seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Oh my gosh, you know, we could actually, we could change the rules. And this is, this is something that actually, you know, Greta's mentioned a couple of times over, over the last year. She said, you know, we need to change the rules. You know, we've been constantly feeling a little bit like the kids at the back of the classroom going, yes, over here. (laughs) Yes. And this is, yeah, this is one of the really exciting things is that actually the changing this law is not only not it's not only is it not out of reach in terms of the influence that everybody can have by just in, enlarging that conversation. I mean, we've seen what you know enlarging a conversation can do in terms of you know the impact of people thinking about climate change, but it's also actually achievable in practice in the sense that it's simply an amendment to an existing set of laws, the the Rome Statute, which is a very powerful document. It governs the International Criminal Court. But the other thing that is so kind of simple about it, I suppose, is that, you know, we aim to have this done at the international level, at the International Criminal Court, and that immediately accesses every criminal justice system of the members of the International Criminal Court. So if you ratify this crime at the international level, you instantly have to apply it and you're in your domestic jurisdiction. So at least in theory, when this is in place, let's say the UK ratifies it, you know, I can tap a policeman on the shoulder and say, oi, I want to report an ecocide. You know, it becomes as simple as that. And so, you know, there's there's a kind of simplicity and a real possibility to it that has, you know, that has a really inspiring quality for people. And I think that's, you know, that's very important in this time when so many of us are feeling powerless. And this piece that you were just talking about, you know, being able to like ratify and have it be a crime at an international level and that that actually trickles down to the local level, down into every community at a local level, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. My next question has to do with, again, kind of back to the Monica Rogers sitting at home, or those of us that, again, kind of are wanting, what are the steps to get us or to get you who are really the face of ecocide and kind of really trying to get these laws amended to include this as a crime. So what can I do to help you? Like, I'm just going to make it that personal. What can I do? 
<laughs> so the first thing you can do is visit our website, which is stopecoside.earth. And there you can sign up, you can join as an earth protector, and you, you can effectively put some funds into what we're doing. I mean, that can either be a one-off or it can be a recurring donation and those funds go directly towards supporting the legal and diplomatic work that takes this forward so it's the first as far as we know it's it's the first ever time that the people have actually been putting their funds into the creation of a new law so this is something that we know that big corporations do all the time they have their lobbying companies that they use and they try and get to the right dinners with the right people and all of that sort of thing if you like we you could say that what we're doing is kind of the good twin you know, we are actually doing that on behalf of the people for a law that we want. Actually just signing up and putting some funds into that is a very, very concrete way. But the second thing is very much what I mentioned before, which is about talking about it. And that doesn't just mean necessarily having conversations face to face, although that would be amazing as well. It's also, you know, we all have networks, we may have a network of 10 people, we may have a network of a 1000 people, depending on what we do, and what social media we use, and so on. But we all are networked. And this is all about collaborating. And it's all about expanding the conversation. Because, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, we don't have time for the entire world to join the Stop Ecosite campaign. But what we do have time for is for the entire world to recognize that what the Stop Ecosite campaign is asking for is very simple and we can all ask for it. And you can ask it to your friends, you can ask it to your elected representatives, you can ask it to your governments, you can ask it also to all the NGOs that you support, especially ones that are working with the environment, because it's a one-liner. Support making ecocide an international crime. It's as simple as that. And for every single environmental campaign group or interest group, you know, whether you're saving your local woodland, whether you're, you know, you're wanting to protect, you know, species from extinction or rare animals, you know, whether you're concerned about climate, in every single case, your cause that you really care the most about will be directly supported by what we're doing. It's one of those foundational pieces that can support all of those campaigns that are out there. So if that, you know, if that phrase, you know, support making ecocide an international crime is something that you can introduce into your own network, your own social network, your own, you know, for example, you know, it could be it could be a blog, it could be uh, an article if you're if you're able to submit to a publication, it could simply be writing a letter to your congressman, you know, it could be something like that. Now, we'll come back to some more detail, I think about America, because it's also a specific case. But in general, though, you know, those are the kind of immediate things that we would call on everybody to do. But we would also re recommend looking on the website because we have a great big list of things that you can do to support. <laughs> yes, for sure. And of course, you know, I'm going to circle right back and be like, so tell me about America as a specific or a special case. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, <laughs> so we all she, know that. The <laughs> I'm just going to take a second and laugh nervously like, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, here we go. Uh, so, okay, okay, I'll pause a little bit for a start so that if you do. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to breathe. I'm, I'm yeah, holding yeah, my yeah. heart and I'm like, okay, breathe, breathe. Okay. okay. It's, it's just, let me, let me just put some language around this for myself because I'm making up over here that this has so much to do with the ways that we've undermined all of the agreements are, that our government has chosen, our leadership has chosen to undermine all of these agreements and pacts that uphold basically a system of justice that was forwarding this effort. And that has fallen apart. I'm making up under the leader, under the current leadership. That is one aspect. It's actually, funnily enough, it's not what I was going to say, but it, it, it is an aspect. And I think that, you know, 
as as we can see from the current situation in America, you know, there is the potential for that to change. Mm-hmm. Um, it and must. It, you know, it really it must. must. Um, and also, it, in a sense, that gives an additional impetus for this conversation to grow in America because if you could, if you know if the american public can wake up to the potential of doing this then you know that will also support you know those who are who could potentially be in power who are not in power now but who can help to remedy some of what's been going on that's one one aspect another aspect which obviously ties in is that america or the united states rather is not uh, currently a member of the international criminal court mm-hmm. which is you know where we're aiming to change this law however Obviously, potentially it can become so. Beyond that, there's also a power to changing the law at the International Criminal Court, which is, you know, holds even though not every country is a member. So uh, India is also not a member. China is also not a member. However, when this is passed at the international level, it is possible for any country that does ratify it to potentially apply something called universal jurisdiction. Now, I'll give you an example. You may recall the Chilean dictator General Pinochet, which was just over 20 years ago now, but he was arrested in the UK for crimes against humanity in Chile. Mm-hmm. Now, he protested, but you know, Chile's not signed up to the international convention that you're invoking. And what the UK Supreme Court said was, no, but we are, and you're on our soil. And we've arrested you here, mm. and therefore we can apply that law. And that is the pr- the principle at work. There is a principle of universal jurisdiction or universal competence, and that can be applied by any jurisdiction if they consider the offence to be serious enough, as long as the offence actually exists. So you know, it means that it's actually very powerful to create ecocide as an offence even for those countries that are not signed up to it. So you get what you end up with is a gradual marginalization of the polluting countries, because obviously in those countries that ratify that law, the US or China, countries that are not members, cannot then engage in those activities in that country. Mm. So obviously there starts to be a marginalization of where they can operate. Obviously, ultimately, you're going to end up with countries having to pollute in their own backyards, which is obviously what the first world countries don't like doing. They like going elsewhere where the regulations are more lax and, you know, they don't care so much about people. So that's going to change all of that as well. So in a sense, what I, I guess what I'm saying is that there are there are two reasons to, you know, for this to be a very important conversation in America. One is to really bolster and move forward with this kind of countering to what the current incumbent administration has done in order to bring on a wave of response to bring a wave of something you know more ecological to the political table in America so this can be a, a strong thread in that conversation but secondly to realize that no matter how much you know Trump may rail against the international criminal court which he certainly has done you know America is not beyond the reach of international law even if they're not signed up to that mm-hmm. and so you know there are there's there's two very good reasons for the American conversation to to become pretty loud the other thing that i wanted to kind of inquire about jojo is just where america and kind of our consumerism falls into this conversation because 
(laughs) I think I told you I'm also a marketer. And so I often look at the way that we market, the way that we, and obviously America is not the only place that does this, but there is also kind of this rampant, I think, consumerism that, again, there's a huge disconnect between the power we hold when we invest in a product or a brand that is doing harm to the environment. I think this is a really good question. And I think two things that spring to mind in in this context. Um, And one of them is that there are many companies and corporations that are trying to do the right thing and that are moving towards ways of approaching, you know, manufacture and so on that are healthier and that take into account the whole cycle of what they're producing. So I'm talking in a way about, for example, Bill McDonough's cradle to cradle movement, if you like, mm-hmm. of, you know, of, of, of approaching consumerism in a different way. And we, you know, we do need to, you know, we're not about to stop buying, stop buying things overnight, if that is not the way our culture is set up, but we can become increasingly conscious, both at the consumer end and at the production end, in terms of what we buy. And I ha- I'm encountering this personally every week. I, you know, there's something that I buy that I've automatically bought for years and that I sort of, I finally have a little moment about it and I go, oh my God, I'm going to look where this comes from and I'm going to look what's made, what it's made of and I'm going to never buy this again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I keep having these moments of, you know, I might think about it in terms of my food ingredients and then, you know, I'll buy something like my, my sub wanted to dye a jumper a different color, you know, and I kind of bought this fabric dye and I, you know, I've done that sort of thing at different points in my life without really thinking about it. And I thought, you know what, that's the last time I'm going to buy one of these because I don't know what chemicals are in it. Oh, yeah, you bring up such a great point. Yeah, go ahead. So so this is really, I so said, this is one aspect, the, the the kind of becoming conscious and so on. And part of that also, which ties in with, with, with our work with Stop Ecoside, is that, you know, a lot of CEOs do want to do the right thing. And so, you know, effectively putting a law like this in place is, allows you to kind of tap things back onto course so that, you know, the, the funds are not constantly going towards the stuff that, that does the harm. And, and, you know, I mean, for example, Polly Higgins, in fact, spoke with, I think it was the head of, at the time of the Royal Bank of Scotland many years ago and said, you know, why is it, in fact, someone in the room asked the head of the bank, you know, what, why is it that you continue to, to invest in and to financially support these destructive activities and, and practices? And the head of the bank just said, well, it's not a crime. Mm. You know, so that just shows you, you know, it's that all of the kind of, you know, we can be as conscious consumers as we like, but unless we turn off that tap, we're just mopping the floor, you know, with the tap still running. So, you know, so there's that, there's that side of, you know, we do need to be conscious. We absolutely do. But we need to demand that further up that kind of, uh, you know, the hierarchy of how things are produced that we are actually demanding a different approach because when it comes down to it you know I drive a fossil fuel car not because I want to drive a fossil fuel car but because I simply cannot afford something more ecological and you know that's not my choice it's the options that are given to me as a citizen following decisions that are made at the highest level you know by industry by policy by subsidies so you know that there's a there's a question of you know one of the levels of becoming conscious is becoming conscious of the fact that as consumers, we also, you know, we, you know, we are not just consumers. We, we, we're not just buyers of something who make a choice and therefore it's all our fault. We are also citizens who are only given certain options by our governments and by 
the industry that influences them. Well, so what I'm hearing is, and and this is such a great point, that there's a certain amount of responsibility, personal responsibility that comes with, you know, becoming more aware. And it's this idea that oftentimes I think we assume that because it's coming at a governmental or a corporate level that they've done their due diligence and they're doing the right thing. And and, and that's often not true. Absolutely. And the other thing I really wanted to talk about was kind of going back to how I love you said that you were going to dye your jumper, which you know that I'm going to tease you because we don't use that word here, but I love it. And I'm like, shoot, what does that mean again? Does that mean sweater? Is a jumper a sweater? <laughs> A jumper is a sweater. Yeah. Okay, and I and I can't say it as elegantly as you. Like I was going to dye my jumper, but (laughs) but it's such a great point. This idea of like just again asking ourselves that question, almost like interrogating some of our purchases, looking more deeply. What is this? Who makes it? What chemicals are in it? Is this contributing to the the detriment or? or not. And then when we stop buying, they stop making it. There's a very direct connection there. Absolutely. I mean, because, you know, consumer power, buyer power is hugely important. It's hugely important. But I, I would say that the power of conversation is equally important in the sense that you could potentially be stopping buying things. And, and obviously, with enough of that, somebody would stop making it. But if you stop buying things, and everyone who's stopping buying things is talking publicly about why they're not doing it, then you've got a really powerful influence. Right. Because the thing with corporations is that they absolutely depend on public confidence. You know, an investment depends on investor confidence and public confidence. So if you're undermining that by calling out what's happening, you are having a very, very direct effect. I mean, if you're a shareholder, even more so, but you're having a you know, very direct effect on, on corporate decisions. Um, and it's, this is also one of the reasons why ecocide as a crime has a particular power that even the other atrocity crimes don't, in the sense that, you know, if you're a, I don't know, let's say you're a, you know, you're a genocidal maniac and you're intent on wiping out a particular population, you're probably not caring too much whether people, you know, what people think of you. Right, right, right. That's not, that doesn't go with that territory. But if you're a corporate CEO, you care very much. You know, in fact, your whole business may depend on what people think of you. And so if you're at risk of being seen in the same bracket as a war criminal or a genocidal maniac, you're going to think really hard about what you're going to do with your company. And so there is this kind of additional power, if you like, of criminalizing ecocide that works in that arena. So this uh, brings me to my second point, which in relation to the whole consumerism issue. And this is actually something that goes much, much deeper. I mean, it goes much, it goes right into the things we assume about ourselves and about the world around us. And, and it's all about mindset. It's about how separate we are. Mm. And, you know, we are so, you talked about a disconnect. You know, culturally, we are so hugely disconnected from the natural world that it, you know, it's very, you know, it's seriously concerning. And people are starting to wake up to this. And, but there are cultures across the world who are well aware of this and have been trying to tell it to us for ages. You know, all the indigenous cultures that talk about Earth as Mother Earth. Why do they do that? Because the earth provides all of our life, everything. You know, we are utterly interdependent with the natural world around us. And yet our Western culture is based on millennia of separatism on of dualism. So, you know, you can go right back to, you know, Plato, you know, the difference between the ideal and the real. You can go through to the you know, the Catholic Church, which is, you know, about the spirit and the body and the separation. And, you know, and actually 
it may feel different to go into the scientific paradigm from you know the church one but actually it's really similar there's still a really strong divide there's a there's a divide between you know the rational and the natural or you know the head and the heart or you know there's that dualism just runs right through and it links again it also links with you know the masculine and feminine and how you know the feminine can you know sense of connection or empathy or you know protection and generation of life is separated from the sense of rationality and you know scientific discovery that is somehow imagined to be objective and not connected to the thing that it's observing so you know this is a whole it is an enormous arena but it's absolutely relevant to what we're facing right now because until we can actually acknowledge that we are not separate from nature and that we have no right to behave as if you know nature is simply there as an infinite resource for us you know there's very little hope for us and i think it's something that people are beginning to realize more and more and on a very personal level this may sound really hippie and weird you know if you're anywhere within reach of ground you know with grass growing on it or even without grass growing on it but actual earth in some way go put your feet on it go put your feet on it regularly because it's you know, just making that connection literally with the ground. It's not trivial. You know, it's this sense of realizing how connected we actually are in reality. I love what you just said. And here's why. I mean, there's so much here that's so rich. But I want to talk about this hippie point that you made, because I told you how 11 years ago, I was raising venture capital. And I was actually working with Ray Anderson at the time, who is the and was the CEO of Interface Floor. Mm. And at the time, I had I finally understood that it wasn't the adults that I needed to reach, it was the children. And it was the children that were being born into the world who were going to basically educate their parents because parents are so connected with love to their children. And it was this idea that children were going to help help parents to kind of come alive, become conscious to this as a huge issue. And mm-hmm. I really struggled because it was like this, it was like somehow being sensitive to what was going on in the environment was synonymous with not shaving your legs and wearing Birkenstocks or something. You know what I mean? Like I was like, what is the problem here? But I really did also get that it's the way, again, that we have been socialized and conditioned to think about things in this dualistic way that you are speaking about. And this idea that what you're talking about now, especially with the masculine and the feminine and all of the ways in which everything in this world is what I call a sexed pair or the opposite or counterbalancing, you know, effect that ultimately all of those things have to have a give and take, mm. a giving and a receiving, a mm-hmm. a way for us to kind of there's that tension in the middle and then there's that coming together and integrating all of these separate ideas and starting to really come together and understand that it's not about throwing the baby out with the bathwater and it's this idea of allowing these paradoxes to stand together and for us to start recognizing that there is a place for us to stand right in the middle of them and allow those things to come together and and be true 
that it's not an either or, that it's both. And we all have to kind of recognize that while yes, I can't change every single thing about my lifestyle, to your point, there are going to be ways in which I don't realize maybe that I'm doing harm or because of my economic situation or because of the products that are available to me. I am a user of those products, but the thing, but the places I can make changes, it's, I think it's about doing your little bit where you can and certainly amplifying because I think we all have gifts. We all have networks, like you said. And so it's about, again, kind of finding our voice, claiming what is our stake in the ground around being a different kind of steward and a different kind of citizen to this planet? And where do we want to make a difference in choosing that place and then doing something? Absolutely. And and I would say that, you know, if your awareness is, is moving in this way, then whatever it is that is your gift that you're bringing, and of course, I would say this coming from my work, but where, wherever, whatever this gift is that you're bringing and whatever the arena that you feel you have agency in, Add your voice saying also, let's make ecocide a crime. Let's stop the harm. Let's actually make it not okay to do this, you know, so that we can, we can actually say, you know, enough, no more. We actually want, we don't want the harm anymore. We want harmony. Mm. You know, we want to move from the harm to the harmony. And I think there's an interesting kind of irony, really, in that, you know, the faith leaders of the world, including the Pope, who's really spoken out about ecocide and has actually asked for it to be a crime. And the indigenous leaders, you know, for example, like in the Amazon, who are absolutely saying, you know, we are suffering ecocide, you know, these faith leaders who are and, 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 and indigenous leaders are talking about something that's a, a concrete physical reality. We are absolutely connected with nature and we are harming nature. And then weirdly, the materialist political leaders like Trump, like Bolsonaro, like Johnson in the UK, you know, they're, they're actually just acting on pure faith. They're acting on pure faith that somehow, you know, economic growth is going to carry on forever and we're all going to be all right. You know, it's, it's this kind of irony that, that, you know, the faith leaders are actually putting in touch, us in touch with reality and the materialists are just acting on some kind of blind faith that is like, flat, you know, it's like believing the earth is flat. <laughs> like, what is that? What is that? It's insane. It's insane, right? It's, it's just that there's something there about that that I, I just cannot get my head around. So here's what I want to ask you next. How much time? Like, I know that this is like such a tricky question, but... What I really want to create here is just a realistic picture of what we're really looking at. You know, we talk about this, and I know that, you know, this gets into a realm where, you know, I'm sure that it's anxiety producing. And it's true, we're, we're kind of in this extinction event. You know, mm-hmm. there's no doubt about that. So there's, there's a there's kind of a timetable that I think has been revealed that I think everybody needs to pay attention to because this is this is urgent. Okay, so I'm obviously not speaking from the climate science perspective here. I, I have a very particular um, approach to this. We're working on changing the law, and that in itself is not something that is done overnight, particularly not at the international level. We think that what we're doing is likely to take between three and five years, which sounds like a long time. But actually, when you look at the fact that governments are saying, well, we need to you know, come to net zero by 2050, then actually changing something within five years is pretty, you know, pretty incredible. But so many sources now are saying that we really, we, we have less time than 
you know, than, for example, the IPCC report told us, you know, we really need to be changing direction very fast. You know, we, this need, it needs to be probably well before 2030, that we need to actually be heading in a different direction. And from our perspective at Stop Ecoside, it's very hard to see how that direction will be changed fast enough without this law or something very like it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Jojo, there, we've also seen a lot of really hopeful, and I think very surprising, I want to say repairs. Here's what I've heard and noticed, and I'd love to hear more about this from you, is when we shut down, when, when COVID happened and we shut economies and all of us sheltered in place, we saw a dramatic repair happening to many places on the planet. Mm. We saw ozone holes close. We saw water systems clean themselves. I mean, am I making this up? <laughs> no, you're definitely not making it up. I think that's absolutely true that we, you know, under this kind of enforced pause, there was, you know, there was a brief moment where, you know, if you if you like nature had a chance to go, <gasps> you know, and take <laughs> and take, take a breath. But let's not kid ourselves that that was actually fixing the problem in right. the sense that, you know, there's, there was plenty of, firstly, there was plenty of activity that was continued even during lockdown that, that was, that was not beneficial. But secondly, it's difficult to see, you know, that there's, there are sort of quite massive changes in terms of policy, in terms of law that need to move for that to actually hold at any kind of level that is you know, that, that, that is going to actually change things. So I think in a sense, what we were given was this kind of eye blink almost. Right. You know, of what's possible. Right. Um, you know, and, and I, I would be very reluctant to call it a silver lining to a tragedy that has clearly claimed the lives of so many thousands. But at the same time, you know, there is this sense that, you know, we, we got a very brief glimpse of what nature is capable of doing if we just take our hands off and stop damaging. So that that in itself is is obviously quite a strong kind of driver for for us. You know, we're able to say, you know, like, you know, if we if we actually stop damaging. But of course, you know, that meant stopping everything. Right. And actually, in reality, we need to move the kind of way we do things. So, you know, it's and it's not necessarily about, you know, a life of privation, but it is at the same time about adjusting what it is we actually think we need and what it is that we actually enjoy. I mean, one of the, I was just reading. um Actually, I was just rereading a little a bit from um, the Cradle to Cradle book, which is from Bill McDonough, where, you know, where, and Michael Brongard, I think, where they're talking about, you know, you can talk about energy efficient buildings, but actually, when you look at nature, nature isn't efficient, nature is effective. So mm-hmm. nature actually creates thousands of flowers in order to create a few new trees. And in the meantime, feeds loads of insects you know re- recycles all of the nutrients you know all of this stuff you know there's there's you know the whole approach of how nature actually does things is very different to what we in our intellects think is 
you know, is about efficiency or cutting down. It's actually about doing things differently and actually conceiving of things and designing things differently. So, you know, we have, we still have quite a long way to go on that. But one of the ways to encourage that is precisely to say, well, you can't go in that direction. Let's close that door. And that way you're actually able to, I mean, you know, humans are amazing. I mean, humans have extraordinary levels of ingenuity. We have extraordinary levels of inspiration. You know, if we know, you know, and, and this is one of the crazy things is that the whole kind of free market ideology, which which in any case isn't free as we know, it's actually Mm-mm. hugely monopolized and supported by state subsidies and all of that sort of thing. But, you know, it's actually when you put limits on something that you end up with true creativity. And nature has limits everywhere. And, you know, we need to put those limits in too, because actually, I mean, this is why, you know, you you were saying at the beginning about how I enjoy working to unusual parameters and parameters, <laughs> you know. I just love that line. Yes. No, it is true. I mean, parameters are the fun thing. So for me, I mean, I think, you know, we need to all be thinking this way in terms of how we produce things, how we how we interact with things, how we buy things, how we use things, how we interact with each other. Do you know what I love best? You know, we we have um, you know, I have like my my particular t- turn to do the cooking in in the, in the evening, right? I you know, I have to cook. Di- it's my turn to cook dinner. I never plan my menus. What I do is I go look at what exactly is available. What is my time? You know, what is my time scale? What are my ingredients? How can I make something really beautiful and delicious with what I have? Mm-hmm. And that's a kind of, I mean, there's, there's actually a whole program that's based on that from, you know, years ago in the UK called Ready, Steady, Cook, you know, where this is, this is the whole way you're supposed to do it on the TV show. But I like to approach the whole life like that. And I think that if we were to approach, you know, manufacturing like that and say, okay, this is what we can't do. You know, we can't, we can't destroy that and we can't damage this, but we have access to this and we want to produce this. And at the same time, we want to make these people happy and we want to have, you know, the bees still able to pollinate the flowers. And then you go, okay, so here are our parameters. What are we going to do within that? And I believe you will get some incredible answers. And that's, and you know, it, it just, you just have to have your parameters. And, you know, I think, you know, I'm hugely optimistic. I think we can do amazing things, but we need to have the right parameters in place. I agree. I agree. I think to your point, it's the innovation, the design, the conversations, the technology. We have so much at our fingertips and we are so innovative. And I think you're absolutely right. It's this idea of, you know, the parameters actually then create a container where the flow, right? It's like what you're talking about is also that masculine and feminine, the container, the parameters, and then the flow and the creativity within the parameters, which I love. So one other thing here, which by the way, I have to read this out loud. Okay. So I love that you asked somebody on our question where we said, how would the people that know you best describe you? I love that you asked somebody that works closely with you. And this is what they came back with. Jojo is on one hand, calm, caring, gentle, and patient. And on the other, an impassioned whirlwind of mischievous energy, an explosion of fireworks, an unstoppable force, passionate, intelligent, and highly articulate. She's able to translate information and sculpt words into visual messages that provoke light bulb moments of understanding. She is thoughtful, loving, deep, inspiring, hilarious, always surprising, humble, supercharged, a true change maker, absolutely fearless, and rubbish at sarcasm. Oh my God. I love that so much. So that is, 
hilarious. So were you like spot on? So, (laughs) so my question is, how the heck did you get involved in this work? And like, what, who was Jojo as a little girl that she, like, could you have predicted that you would be doing this? That's a really, okay, that's interesting. I, I don't very often get asked this sort of thing. Um, so, <laughs> so I have to say, I mean, as a, as a child, I was very in my head. I, I was not a physical child at all. I didn't even learn to ride a bicycle till I was 21. You know, I was very much, I read all the time. I absolutely devoured fairy tales and folk tales from all around the world. I literally read the entire supply that was in the library. So I was very kind of, I was, yeah, I was, I was quite a, a head child. And I always talked a lot. Okay, that, that hasn't changed. Um, <laughs> I but, love it. Yeah. But, but I remember, I mean, I did a lot of performance work as well at school. I mean, you know, that was, I was often asked to you know, play an assembly and things like this. I would just take every opportunity going mm-hmm. and people would say to me, how comes you always do this? You know, why do you always, you know, agree when they say, can you perform this or can you do that? And I would just say it's good practice. Mm-hmm. And they would say good practice for what? And I would say, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I just know it's good practice. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and I, and I did have this kind of thing where, you know, and I think there were there was a stage in my life where there was an ego thing attached to it. I like to think that that's not so much there now because actually you can't do the kind of work that I'm doing with a big ego. It's just not possible. Every now and again, people come in and want to work with us and they bring their egos with them. And we're just like, no, this isn't working. Mm. Um, you know, we almost put a sign on the door saying, look, if you've got baggage, leave it here or take it away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, But there was I did have a stage of, of kind of, you know, if there was something to kind of be the president of I would be the president of it or I'd try and be the president of it so you know I would kind of you know I was the kind of person that would be the the class rep or the you know the student union president and those kinds of things and again there was no particular reason for it there was simply a sense that oh I know I could do that and it's available to do so let's do it you know and it, it was that kind of thing I have to say I mean I my my background has gone through so many different phases I worked in the travel industry a long time you know, and involved a lot, a lot of communication, a lot of talking to people. I, I was an entrepreneur for a while. I designed computers. I mean, you know, these sort of crazy different things that I've done. And I remember getting to a stage and, and there was always this thread in the background of, I always had a kind of, I suppose you could call it a kind of armchair activism where I would look, you know, I'd research stuff around particularly the environment, particularly health and particularly children. So those mm-hmm. were the kind of three areas I was always interested in. But at a certain point, and actually weirdly, I was invited to take part in a training for local organizers, for activist work around, in, in my case, it was around the environment. And it was bang on my 42nd birthday. And I remember having this moment where I thought, okay, this is where I kind of, you know, do, do I just say, no, it's my birthday, I'm going to do something else. And I thought, actually, if I commit to this, it's because this is the direction that I'm going to be going in. Mm. And, and and I decided to do it. And it was really interesting because it was actually a particular area. And, and I'll tell you, it was it was the fracking industry. It was the fracking industry that got me out of my armchair and into that training and onto the streets because it was, you know, I remember when I first read about it and I read about it when it was already happening in the US and they were just thinking about bringing it to the UK. So this was back in 2013. And I had a conversation about it in my household and we had a sort of extended house up. We had various lodges and stuff living with us. And my daughter, who was five at the time, was sitting on the sofa and she overheard me talking about the process that's involved in hydraulic fracturing, which is this awful, unconventional way of trying to get oil out of the ground by basically fracturing the rock. And it's just so toxic and so polluting. And 
my daughter heard me and she burst into tears. She was mm. five years old. She burst into tears and she said, Mommy, I don't understand. Surely they must know that if they're poisoning the earth, they're going to poison themselves. You know, she said, you've got to tell them to stop. You've got to, you know, you've got to call them and tell them to stop. And at the time I remember saying, well, you know, honey, I wish it was that simple that I could just pick up the phone to these you know, chief executives and say, you've got to stop it. My daughter doesn't like it, you know. And she said, well, who can you talk to? And she said, can you talk to the voting man? And she had just accompanied me to the ballot box. Bless her heart from the mouths of babes. Yes, exactly. She just accompanied me to the ballot box. And and she said, well, can you talk to the voting man? I said, I guess I can talk to the voting man. And she said, you've got to tell him, you've got to tell him to stop. And I just had this moment where I was like, my God, you know, a five-year-old can understand how insane this is. And she's basically calling me to respond. And this is her life. This is going to be her world, you know, and all of her friends, you know, and I just had this moment where I was like, "It's, it's not good enough me signing petitions and sending off emails Mm -hmm. you know I've actually got to get properly informed on this and actually do something and I had this conversation with this politician who did this terribly slippery politician thing of kind of you know avoiding my questions and kind of skirting around what I was trying to get out you know the information I was trying to get and I remember coming out of that meeting and actually it was funny because my daughter was with me because and and she said she nudged me at one point because I was talking about fracking and she said oh you've got to talk to him about the burning rubbish place as well and I ended up involved in this whole anti incinerator movement locally and and I you know ended up talking to him about that as well and I came out and I thought I never want to be in that position again I never want to be in the position where I know somebody is running rings around me because I don't have the information right on hand and I know exactly what I'm wanting to say mm-hmm. and so that kind of gave me this focus I suppose and I ended up you know, with others, you know, sort of starting up local campaigns. And I got very involved in the whole UK, the nationwide anti-fracking movement. And it was in that context that I actually met Polly Higgins, who had been working on making ecocide a crime and and promoting that concept for years, because she moved to the area where I had moved back to with my children, which is the area I grew up in where I live now, which is in the Cotswolds in the west of England, which is this beautiful area. I mean, if you've seen Lord of the Rings and, you know, you Uh, see the the Shire where the hobbits live, that's basically where I live. I've been Um, trying to find you for ages and now I know (laughs) where to go. Yeah. So so I come from Stroud, which is also the birthplace of the Extinction Rebellion. So it's it's becoming quite a radical little market town in the middle of the countryside but but yeah so coming back here and making my home here with my kids meant that I was here when Polly also moved out of London and moved to here and she was researching some some stuff around fracking for potential legal cases and some mutual friends said, oh, you have to talk to Jojo. She knows all about this. And so we ended up kind of, you know, I ended up doing some research work with her and we had this instant kind of kindred spirit moment where it was like, you know, we're obviously, you know, we work in the same way. And and there was also, there was also a strong intuitive thread to how we worked. We were good at following hunches and it kind of, you know, we just worked very fast and thought and talked and, you know, everything was really fast. (laughs) It was great. And I suppose there, you know, there was this sense that, you know, I've done all of these different things, sometimes not knowing in a sense what the coherence was between them. But since starting this campaign with Polly and now continuing and growing it after she's she's departed, I have used every single one of those skills, whether it be leading groups, whether it be communicating, whether it be, you know, designing websites, whether it be, you know, all of this, all of this has contributed to what I'm now able to do. So I really feel like that, you know, those years from that moment where I was like, okay, it's my birthday, where am I going to go from here? You know, that kind of really, yeah, it was, it was a, was a real crossroads moment. And that conversation with my daughter, you know, and, and, and I still think, <laughs> you know, still now, I mean, you you know, some people go to, um, you know, to big communications companies to make sure that their messaging is accessible to the masses. I just get my daughter to read it. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> I, you know what? I know this about both you and your husband about re- having your children read because it's so true. It's like there's something here, and this this was exactly what I was pointing to earlier when I was talking about you know that that it became really clear to me that it was our children that was going to help us to change or see something right. And it, there was this when I was listening to your story about your five year old daughter, I just had full on chills. And of course, all of the ways in which you know there was so much synchronicity and and synergy not only in all of your background and how there was this thread kind of running through everything, but then how, you know, you met Polly and it was like, what I'm making up is like your, your cells knew each other. You were like, you know, yeah, right. Like that, that, that it was like kismet, like a destiny. And so I'm on your website right now and, you know, you're talking about fracking. And what I want to point to here for our listeners is that there's so many areas where even just simply there's not on the page page that I'm I'm on it's like the what is ecocide page and mm-hmm. it's like industrial fishing is ecocide oil spills is ecocide plastic pollution ecocide deep sea mining ecocide deforestation industrial livestock farming i mean it's endless mineral extraction oil drilling palm oil and wood production oil spills mining mountaintop removal tar sands fracking <laughs> textile chemicals, agricultural pollution and polluting of our soils, river systems, insect populations, chemical disasters, weapons, Agent Orange, radioactive contamination, nuclear testing. People are going to turn off this podcast. They're going to be like, how depressing. The industrial emissions, there's agricultural industries, cement industries. There's so many areas that I think what I loved about this page is like, oh my gosh, even a subject like fracking, to dive a little bit more deeply and to take a look at all of the ways there are so many places for us to get educated about, for Mm -hmm, us to start mm -hmm. talking about. And well, what I'm hearing you saying is like, yes, dialogue, like, let's talk about these things. Let's because it's really the dialoguing that starts us thinking about where we can make a difference, who are we connected to, where can we, you know, raise our voices. Absolutely. And I think what's interesting, I mean, that page, I know you you did this whole long list, and it it can feel depressing. You know, I, I think the way that we see it is that all of those activities are potential ecocide. And so there's this thread of this word ecocide, if you like, that can tie them all together, that we can potentially put a parameter around and look how many things it will affect for the better. Mm. So that, you know, so it's one of those kind of, you know, you know, it's a real kind of key foundational piece. But there's also, you know, and there is also this sense that, you know, our entire global economy is based on ecocide right now, materially, that is what's happening. But when you look at each of those things, and you go research it, there are healthier, far better designed and, you know, circular ways of doing pretty much everything on that list. I mean, you know, in the sense that, you know, we are ultimately allowing particular methods of how we supply ourselves to, you know, deplete the very thing that we're using to feed ourselves. So, you know, we're we're kind of biting the hand that feeds us, if you like. But there are so many movements towards doing something positive and doing things in the right way that will simply need the nudge in the right direction. And that, I I believe, is what this law can do. You know, we're not going to be able to stop completely producing things but if you can you imagine if there was a you know there was a law in place that said all the metals 
that are currently just, you know, getting dumped or whatever, absolutely have to be recycled because when you're producing those, you know, you're doing your extraction, you have to do it in such a way that it's not damaging the environment. You're not creating, you know, huge toxic pollution for the local community. You're not creating sort of, you know, horrible lung diseases from people that are working there for five days a week. You've got to actually account for all of those things. And therefore, if you're going to extract, you're going to have to do it in a very different way, you know, which is going to change the whole economic relationship, which is going to mean that actually, when you're throwing something away, you're going to be thinking really hard about that, because those are the materials that actually need to be staying in circulation. Mm. The kind of nudge that you get from having that extra parameter creates a whole knock on range of things that governments and economies will need to deal with, but that I believe we have more than, you know, the ability, the ingenuity and the capacity to do. We just need to have a reason to do it. Plenty of reason to do it. And so I've really, really just enjoyed this conversation so much. And I'm so honored that you were willing to join me on the podcast here, Jojo. I <laughs> I want to also just invite you to tell our listeners again, just how they can learn more. I know that you have a letter. I'm sure that you would love all of our listeners to, to sign. I'll, of course, have it on the actual show notes but I'd love for you right. to go ahead and direct them. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, right now there are uh, there are actually a couple of things. So obviously you can go to our website, stopecoside.earth. You can sign up there and there's a good menu of things for taking action there. One current ones that's really important at the moment is the letter that was submitted by Greta Thunberg and the activists called Face the Climate Emergency, which actually is calling on global leaders to recognise and advocate for a crime of ecocide. So there's a link to that on our website too. So signing that would be great. And you'll also find other resources there, like, for example, text of a letter if you want to write to your congressman or your MP or so on. So there's a whole bunch of things you can do. And just coming back to that same basic one again, which is talk about it. You know, talk about this word. What does this word mean? What could, you know, what could it mean to, to make a law around, around ecocide? Let's make this conversation really grow. We will. You can count on it. I'm going to be just, I've, this has been such a wealth of information and I'm feeling so much fire as if I didn't have enough already, but in my belly around this conversation. <laughs> um, so yeah, thank you just so much again. And I, I really love how you've, you've honored your Polly in this conversation at so many occasions. I can tell that she just meant the world to you. And, you know, so I felt like she was really here as part of the conversation. Yeah. I know you must miss her terribly. Oh, that's lovely. Thank Thank you so much. Any additional links in the show notes, Ojo? And in the meantime, you know, I look forward to speaking with you again soon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.